Hey, one of the most valuable things in life is to have friends that I would call uh, friends that offer you the trifecta. Friends that are able to encourage you and comfort you in the midst of struggles and daily challenges and are there for you when the web breaks. Friends that are able to challenge you where you are to see where God is at and what is he calling you to and to move you in a direction and to challenge you to not stay where you are. And friends that you just have a lot of fun being around. And uh, God has placed a few of those individuals in my life over the last several years, and one of them I've asked to come and speak today. Uh, Bill Johnson is a close friend, uh, has been a confidant, has um, helped me become the kind of pastor that I am, the kind of leader that I am, has challenged me in some of my cynicism, and has invited me to lean into the spirits prodding in my life in a way that very, very few people have uh, been able to do. And so I'm going to ask Bill to come and share as part of our series. I've asked him to speak on a topic that he and I have spent lots of hours processing together, and that is indeed shame. And I've asked him to come and just kind of give us a framework for all of that. Bill, it is a joy and a privilege to have you here. Good morning, Sparta. How you doing? Uh, I have to make a confession. You saw the sign that said, uh, I'm a Wesleyan minister, but uh, even the Wesleyans, I've kept it a secret up until probably now, that I was born and raised Baptist and uh, grew up, went to the First Baptist Church of Maryville, Indiana, was there for years and years. And so when I get to be back in a Baptist church, whether you like it or not, Baptist church has a very unique feel. I just need you to know that you're here every time and you just think it's your home and you walk in and it's what you do, but I can almost tell the moment I walk in. My family, we were down in Alabama for the winter and we went to a Baptist church for Easter. I'm telling you what, I, I love it. I love it. I'll tell you why. As I'm walking in, there's a good-looking gentleman, navy blazer, khaki trousers, golf shirt, and he's that guy that you know, like, as you're walking in, he's like, glad to have you, right? He's on the back, and he's excited I'm there, and I'm excited there, and I'm like, it's good to be back at a Baptist church. So thank you for letting me be here this morning with you. I'm excited to be here with you. So this idea of shame, it's a big topic. It's a heavy topic. It's a hard topic. It's a topic I've had experience with. Anybody know what this is? But it's a particular kind of bucket. Who said popcorn? Popcorn bucket. What you don't know about me is I love movie theater popcorn. I don't even see a movie. I'm not kidding. 15 minutes from my house is the Cinema South, and I just get up at home. I'm watching a Cubs baseball game, and I get up, and the family's like, where are you going? I'm going to get some popcorn. I drive to the movie theater. I go in. I get in line at the concession stand, and the lady says, or young man, what movie are you seeing? I said, no, just want some popcorn. And I get popcorn, my free, free popcorn bucket. I kid you not, I sit down on the couch in the lobby of the movie theater and I eat my popcorn. There's a reason. Because with that bucket, you actually can get two buckets per visit. So I eat the first bucket sitting there 
not even worried. Everybody's going to some movie theater. I'm happy as a clam. Now, you can tell I was sitting there because I'm known for leaving a little popcorn uh, sometimes in my beard and sometimes around. And then I eat that one and I get a second one and I go home, okay? And you're wondering, what does popcorn have to do with shame? I want you to imagine you're sitting in a movie theater, empty. One of those theaters you walk in, you're the only one there. And you're excited because you're going to see the movie, right? And, and you sit down and the movie starts, but it's not a regular movie. It's not a regular movie. What starts to go across the, the theater screen, that huge screen, is the movie theater of your own thoughts and what passes through your mind. On the screen. Now the good news is you're by yourself. But then you look around and all your wonderful church people are there sitting with you. As the movie theater of your mind. Now if your mind's like my mind, it's very broken. And I would be the guy that saw the person that pulls into the handicapped spot to run in and get their coffee. I have thoughts about what that would do across the movie theater of my mind. Most of them are not what Jesus would do. I don't have the what would Jesus do bracelet because I don't know that I'm that good at that. See, the movie theater of our mind, thoughts are going across all the time. And if you come from a background with shame or guilt, that would be an, an endeavor to say the least. But then I want you to picture just you and Jesus sitting in those movie seats as the thoughts of your mind go by. Would shame, would you feel any shame at some of the thoughts that might go by? I know I would. I'm far from perfect. See, shame is a particularly insidious emotion, especially if you come from a Christian background. I argue there's no shame like Christian shame. We can put shame. I was working out at the gym the other day, and I heard a guy say something to another guy, and he said, whoa, 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 don't put anything more on me. I'm Catholic. I got enough guilt on me. I thought, that's an interesting thought. Don't put any more on me. You see, shame doesn't just tell you that you did something bad. Shame tells you, you are bad. In fact, John Lynch says it this way. He says that shame convinces you that you in particular are more broken than other people. In your mind, you actually realize, boy, if they knew what I was really like, no one would want to be with me. And underneath shame is just that ache that happens. And because the ache is so painful, we will almost always turn to something else to medicate ourselves, to soothe that shame. And most of what we turn to is not good. That's why we call them addictions. Nobody wants to do that. It turns to it, and then that creates more shame. And we call that the shame cycle. So what do we do about shame? 
Now, I'm going to ask you to turn to a text that you're very familiar with. But one of the things I want you to do that I do in other arenas when we engage Scripture, I like to read it very slowly and let the words that are living and breathing and from God work in us. So if you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at a text you're familiar with and maybe pull something out that has something to do with what shame does to us. God, as we engage your word, I pray that it is the living, breathing document it always is. That it does what only your word can do. It can both cut and heal. It can pierce and yet provide deep healing. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be active in helping each of us where we are understand what you have. We pray in your name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, please. You know the story. Let's read. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but... Of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate, and then both of their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, this, I, I, always, I can't help, it just always cracks me up. The woman you gave me. Just, I'm just going to let, let that just sit there. I don't usually comment on text, but it just cracks me up, our ability to blame God. It just, just cracks me up. Not what this text is about. <sighs> Who told you? The woman you gave me, she gave it to me, and I ate. I believe that much of what ails us and much of what we don't always understand is answered in what I call the bookends of the Bible, the first three or four chapters of Genesis and the last three or four chapters of the book of Revelation. Those 
those books are the beginning and ending that explain the entire story. Just like a movie. If you know how it starts and you know how it's going to end, the middle is that much better. And everything we need to know about shame is embedded here. Now, I want you to look at verse 6. What happens is the serpent says that you will be like God. And then the text actually tells us something we don't normally see. Eve, Isha in the Hebrew, Isha is having thoughts about what is happening. She said, no, we're not supposed to touch it or eat it. And then she looks at it. And the text says, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she ate it. This is a text that's telling us her state of mind. Most texts we have show behaviors or actions or words. This is the one that is saying she is making assumptions and they are very, very different. What she is saying in this text is that she saw that it was good for food, pleasant to the eye, and it would make one wise. Now, let's try to kind of pull these apart a little bit. What she is saying is that if I eat of that, I will have it all, I will experience it all, and I will know it all. I will have it all. I will experience it all. I will know it all. She looks at it and says it's good for food. It has a function to her. It's something that she can have. It falls under the category of stuff. She says, I can have it all. And then she says, it says it was pleasing or pleasant to the eye. That is a deep emotional statement. She is saying there's a pleasure, there's an experience. Oh my, it's a passion statement. And the last one says, and I will know it all. Now here is what's happening. This is the same pattern of sin for all humanity. We don't have time to study it now, but Satan tempts Jesus the exact same way. You can have it all, know it all, experience it all. In fact, I believe that scripture is cogent. Cogent means that the theme runs throughout all of scripture. And the entire book of Ecclesiastes are these three questions. In chapter 2, the author of Ecclesiastes actually says, I set out to have it all. Remember, if you're familiar with the story, he said, I built buildings and I built gardens. I'm the richest human being on earth. I am going to have it all. And he builds everything he can possibly have. He has 10 Mercedes in the garage. He's got five yachts. He owns six golf courses. He owns restaurants. He owns resorts. And he has it all. That's what he does, number one. Number two, he says, I set out to know it all. I wanted to find the wisest people. I wanted to find the smartest people. I sought out knowledge. And then the last thing the author does is he engages in experiencing it all. And he says, I threw the biggest parties you could ever throw. And what's in those three is the lie. 
You see, we were actually meant to have it all, experience it all, and know it all. But the lie that Satan offers, and it's the same one he tempts us with, is you can have all of those things without God. And when we look at the culture today, they are taking those three have it all, let's have as much free things, right? I think I read a story, uh, the governor signed up a, a lunch. Every student in the entire state of Michigan is going to get a free lunch. You can have it all when somebody else pays. You can experience it all. We see all sorts of things happening in the world around gender and identity and all these things that you can experience it all and then on top of that you can know it all and I believe the reason the culture is actually so angry is because they don't know or they're starting to figure out they're living a lie you can only have it all know it all experience it all with Christ and you're going to end up empty that's what the author of Ecclesiastes tells us so how do we fall for that? How does that happen to us? Let's take a little turn here. Hopefully I'll connect these dots for you. In John 14, 6, Jesus says a statement that all of us that have grown up in church will know. He says, I am the way, what class? Say it again, I am the What Jesus is saying, as I've been understanding and studying this, is Jesus is not just making some small statement that says, well, there's only one way to God, me. There's only one truth, me. Oh, true, there's only life in me. That's true. But what I want you to do when you interact with verses, especially like this one, Jesus is saying something more jihugic than we can imagine. And yes, jihugic is a word. He's not saying something this big. He is saying something this big. And part, I believe, of what he is saying is the Trinity is in all of this. And my belief and my hope this morning is that I can help you understand that the Trinity is the antidote to what ails us. In this case, it's shame. But I hope to give you a way to think about it to help you understand that the Trinity are constantly at work. I'm, I'm trying to lobby Pastor Nate to maybe let me do a series on the Trinity. Because I believe the formation of our faith can only be as deep as our understanding of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and the person and power of the Holy Spirit. They work together in our spiritual formation. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not just making a statement about, yeah, I'm the way to God. and I'm the... He's making a much, much bigger statement. You see, God the Father has a way. What I mean by that is Jesus constantly says the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. What he's telling us is that God's kingdom has a way. We 
are not a democracy in heaven. We serve a king. And if you look in the text in Genesis, the term that God uses for Adam and Eve is the term viceroy. It means that Adam and Eve were meant to rule on behalf of another. They don't rule what they would want to rule. They rule what the king would want them to do. And so as followers of Christ, we are to have a way that reflects the kingdom of God. Our children should be in our homes. And when Christ comes back, there shouldn't be much difference. It should be like the kingdom. And God's kingdom is a different kingdom. And if you don't think way matters to God, how things happen, read the book of Leviticus. He is very, very particular about the way he wants things done. About how the animals be sacrificed and what to do with it and what body parts and where to spread the blood and sprinkle it all over the place. Not just there, but here. And then we know in the poor text where the ark is being transported, Usa reaches out and all he does is touch the ark. But that wasn't God's way. And guess what? God's way matters to him. And so if we're going to try to go after shame, we have to understand that God's way is a kingdom and a king, and we are to reflect and do that way. And let me be clear, God's kingdom is not about power and rightness. When Jesus is praying in the garden, I love the line, right? Peter sees the the Roman soldiers, and he cuts the guy's ear off. That, that just cracks me up. He, he, either he was the best swordsman or the worst. I don't know which one. Because to cut an ear off, that's a trick. Or you just closed your eyes and missed. And then Jesus turns to him and says, we know, what does Jesus say? I could call what? What? 10,000 angels. The, the warrior kind. The fighting kind. If you think the kingdom of God comes in by power and might and right, I could do that. What he shows us in that moment, the kingdom of God is about service and sacrifice and humility. And our households have to reflect the ways of our king. And then Jesus is the life the more I read and understand Jesus as the God-man, he is everything. You see, Scripture is cogent. Its, its themes run throughout, and I'll show you an example. Somebody tell me, Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created what? what the what? The, the heavens, right? And what was the second one? The earth. The first verse of the Bible tells us that there are two realms. There's a spiritual realm, a heavenly realm, and there's an earthly realm. And God sets up Adam and Eve to run the earthly realm while he's in charge of the spiritual realm. Let me ask you a question. Who in all of history, who is the one person that would possess the credentials to run heaven and earth. Amen. Because he's the God-man. You see, if, if, a, if a human ran the spiritual world, the angels would probably be like, yeah, okay, he, you know, whatever. Right? And, and if, if, if God in his 
mystery, like we'd be like, yeah, but he's not human. He's not like us. So in Genesis 1, we see the need for the God-man. It's already there. And in Jesus is life. We know that in Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him and through him, everything on heaven and earth is, was created, both invisible and visible. He is life. In fact, he's the only one of the Trinity that dies. And if you die, you live. And he says, oh, death, where is your sting? You see, God the Father is the way. There's a way that God wants things done. And we know that Jesus constantly says, not my way. Jesus is not a way. The Father is a way. The Father has a way. Oh, Dad wouldn't want that done. Has anybody ever heard that? Oh, your, dad, your father wouldn't like that. You hear, have you heard that? Your dad's not going to go for that. There's a way. And then Jesus is the life. Life comes in and through him. And then the Holy Spirit is truth. In fact, John 14, uh, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, what class? Helper. Helper. That's a person. The helper that he may be with you forever. And the name of the helper is what? The spirit of truth. You see, Jesus, when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he's not just making a general statement. He's making a very specific statement about the breadth and depth of the Trinity. And as importantly, the point that the Trinity are the active participants in our spiritual transformation. Our growth comes because of the three of them. All three of them. So I want you to start to think a little bit differently. I want you to ask yourself when you're having emotions, whether it's shame or anxiety. I saw, I think one of the groups was doing a study on worry, which is progressing. People have more depression, anxiety, and worry out there. You ask yourself, what is the way of God's kingdom for me in this? What is the way? What does God's kingdom ask of me here? What's the way? And then ask yourself, what's the truth? When it comes to shame, remember, shame is an attack on our identity. Now, maybe you don't do this, but I can often, in my own mind, have an entire court case going on. I have the accuser bringing a file of all the things that I think, even though maybe I don't do them, think, well, you know, look at this. Look at what, look at what he's thinking. Movie steering in my mind. And the accuser looks at God and says, this guy, he, he's with you? It's an attack on our identity. And so the way, the truth, and the life answers that identity issue And again, if Nate ever has me 
back, I would love to unpack the, how the idolatry of affirmation, identity, and security are always being attacked by Satan. We see it in the temptation of Jesus, if you're the Son of God, if you're always attacking our identity, always pointing. Remember, he's the accuser. That's what he does. He accuses. Oh, you know what he did. You know what she did? Did you see that one? Oh, look at that. And so as we look at issues or things we face like shame, we have to ask, what is the way of God's kingdom? Does anyone see for a believer, a follower of Jesus, does anyone see shame as something that God does to us? God doesn't shame you. The first question the character in Genesis, I believe to be Jesus, says to Adam and Eve is, where are you? Do you know the first thing that he didn't ask? What did you do? What did you do? What did you do? You see, there's no what we did that's too big for Jesus. He doesn't come to us and say, oh, well... The gospel's big, but boy, that's a little over the top. That's too much shame. The gospel, I didn't die for that. He asks where we are because what sin does is puts distance between me and him. One of my favorite, I was interacting with some folks who have helped me through a ton of darkness, and they showed me this photo we were talking about how different addictions and things wreck us and all stuff. And this guy said, let me show you this. And he showed me this painting. You can look it up. It's a, it's a heroin addict. If you've not seen, it's a powerful painting. And the heroin addicts, it's a, a, a painting. He's got the rubber strap, and he, he's got the needle, and he's just got the sleeve rolled up, and he's just doing what any addict does, which is just harm themselves or harm ourselves. And then as you look at the photo, Jesus is standing behind him, and it's Jesus' arm. You see, we don't sin and kind of go off to some secret place and click a website or do whatever. We don't go to someone's relationship we shouldn't be in and think, oh, I'll get back to Jesus on Sunday. Jesus, the God-man, is in it. And let me be clear, because of the power of the gospel, Jesus redeems everything. So our shame is right in his wheelhouse. He would actually probably look at us and go, hmm, sin is, I get it, but sin brought you to shame, and I am not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. A week and a half ago, I'm sitting at Starbucks Friday morning with a bunch of guys that I meet with, and the guy comes over, and you can just see he has got shame on him like, 500-pound backpack, head down. And he says, I heard one of you guys say something about Jesus. Can you pray for me? And I said, well, you got to sit down. we got to hear your story. And he starts to tell us that in two days, he's going to be sentenced for child pornography on his computer. FBI knocks on his door, he said, took my kids away. I'm in the middle of divorce. I lost my job. My two kids I can't be with. And I thought to myself, is the gospel big enough for him? Is it class? Is it class? The gospel is big enough for him. 
Now, we can all talk about how that is, right? I don't mind sitting by him. I don't mind talking to him. I don't mind interacting with him. Jesus is not ashamed of you. That, that's what shame does. It says, oh, if, boy, if, you, if he knew, as if he doesn't. And Jesus sits with us and says, I'll walk with you. I'll be with you. I'll call you my friend in front of others. You see, the Holy Spirit opens up our heart to it. The Holy Spirit says, I'm the great cardiologist. Watch the work of Jesus and let me drive that truth of that gospel in. I love our gospel theology, but it's not just a salvation from hell thing. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. But who needs the power of the gospel today? I do. I need the transforming power of the Trinity, transforming me, healing me, telling me truth, and showing me a way right now. It's not just a card I pull out of my pocket and say, well, I prayed that sinner's prayer. I'm good to go. The gospel transforms our shame today through the way, the truth, and the life. And the Holy Spirit's the active agent doing that in us. I was talking um, with my wife, Mrs. Johnson, about speaking this morning, and she's awesome. And uh, she says, well, that's all nice. <laughs> Which means, like, what's the point? <laughs> it's all nice. But how do I do that, she said. I want to talk for a minute about how we do this. And then if there's time, I told Pastor Nate, I, I, I'd maybe even like to have, we're, we're the right size group, we could have some questions and answers because the Trinity is the core of everything. And most of our, we love the Jesus story. God is cool, but we're a little bit afraid sometimes. And the Holy Spirit seems like a hippie. And so we're not quite sure what to make of that, right? So how do we play this out? The first thing I want you to know is that as a person in the kingdom of God, if you have said yes to Jesus, you say yes to his ways, his words, and his walk. I'm amazed at what I see people think Jesus is and isn't. He will never fit in a box you ever create. Ever. So the first thing we have to do is we have to live in community. I'm going to ask you a hard question the book of James says that we confess our sins to whom? One to another. Why confess our sins one to another? In fact, I'll be honest with you, as a Wesleyan, John Wesley, we have copies of his journals where the weekly small group meeting if you went three weeks and didn't confess sin, they threw you out. You ever heard of that? He writes, with great tears and remorse, I removed six from the small groups, the bands they called them, for failure to confess sin. Why? Why? 
Because sin wants to stay hidden. Its power is in its hiddenness. It's like a beach ball. Let's push it down and pretend like it's not there. Let's hide it. And when you confess sin to that group of people that are close with you, something happens that God knows we need. We confess it one to another. So my question for you is, when you have a prayer meeting, wind and fire, you can start with confession. Now, I'm not saying we do that in the big group thing. I'm not saying that. But if you don't have a safe place that you're confessing, your arrogance, your self-control, your anger, your, I love my other one. I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. That's just anger light. <laughs> you're still angry. Your independence, your need to be right. Are you confessing those things? Community. And submitting to them. Do you know that in the faith community, someone can, up, can come up to you that cares for you and say, hey, I've got some questions about this that I see. Second is you have to be, listen to me carefully, immersed in Scripture. I'm not talking about verse of the day or Scripture McNuggets. You eat a chicken McNugget, it's food kind of. You, you immerse yourself in Scripture. My son was telling me, he was reading through the book of Ecclesiastes for the second time. I'm like, wow, like you're a trooper. I don't know if I would recommend that, but you're going at it, right? We are immersed in the wholeness of Scripture. Not Scripture McSnacking here. The third is we live a life of prayer and what we call listening prayer. Jesus says, my sheep will know my voice. They won't fall for the voice of the other. They'll know my voice. That's listening prayer. Sometimes we spend too much time in talking prayer and wonder why I never hear God. Well, that's because you didn't shut up. I'm very capable of this, by the way. I'm a stockbroker. I talk for a living. And we have to lean into the personhood of the members of the Trinity. We have to know the ways of God the Father. We have to know the life that Jesus teaches us. We have to let the Holy Spirit be the active person and agent in our life. I will share, and I know Nate's okay, the turning in our relationship came when I was on a motor, my motorcycle going to see a client he texted me he wasn't home. And I had this strange, I, I call it a, a breeze. The, the Holy Spirit is often nothing more than a breeze that kind of goes across your cheek. It's not always yelling, screaming. And I thought, I'll go see Nate. I don't know why. I didn't have any desire to see Nate. <laughs> but I just felt like I was supposed to go see him. So I drove and I parked my motorcycle right in the back corner there. And I just, out of the fun of it, because I like to do this, I, I took... I don't know how to do these selfies very well, so don't count on me for those. I take a selfie of me in front of his office. I text him. I just said, hey, you know, no reason. Just I'm out riding and I came to see you. I mean, I'm not bothering you. And two seconds later, he comes out. He says, I was praying. Someone. I just needed someone. That's the Holy Spirit class. 
You see, we have to yield and submit to the Spirit. We can't start by the Holy Spirit by saying, well, let me tell you what I want to do. Let me tell you what I want to do. Philip baptizes the eunuch, comes up out of the water, and the text says, and then he found himself in Azatas, 18 miles away. Holy Spirit transported him. You see, when we want to live in the way, the truth, and the life, and go after things like shame and others, we have to live in the fullness of the Trinity in every aspect of our life. And so ask yourself, what's the way, what's the truth, what's the life? What will bring me life here? Hopefully, hopefully, Nate, if I can convince Nate, and you nice people would ever have me back. I get invited once a lot. Um, <laughs> and people invite my wife back to all sorts of things. Oh, Bill gone that weekend? Okay, well, you can come on over, so... If Jesus is redeeming everything, your shame, let me be clear, is nothing to him. The power of the gospel says you are my son and my daughter in whom I delight. Not because of what you've done, but because the God of the world and universe said so. He said so. And when he says so, that's enough for everybody. All right, Pastor Nate, you want to take some questions or the time? Do you, you decide? Thank you, by the way, for letting me come speak with you. So I'm going to do, I'm going to do this. Um, I'm going to three categories for you, all right? So you've got how the Trinity influences, impacts, provides the antidote. I've got a high-conflict couple. They're married for... 13, 14 years, um, raising elementary age kids. Um, sex life is strained because of schedules and all kinds of stuff. And guys kind of immerse himself at work. Wife has got a job, but she's feeling like she's just trying to be superwoman in every arena. And they can't get on the same page. And they're starting to ask questions like, I'm not sure this is what I signed up for. What's the antidote? How does, this, how does the Trinity step into that and offer something to bring the kind of unity and the kind of intimacy that is craved by both of them in that situation? Mm. That's a great question. So one of the things I believe when Apostle Paul over and over and even Jesus talks about we worship in spirit and in truth. What, they're not making a theological statement. They're making what I would call an ontological statement. They're, they're saying intellect matters and emotion matters just as much. And what makes the Trinity so powerful is they can touch at all at those points. So the question I would probably ask that couple is, try to put your stuff to the side. Tell me about the ways of God's kingdom. What things would you think would happen in a relationship? If someone looked at the two of you and said, oh, that's just like God's kingdom, what things would they see? They would see, in my family we talk all the time, when it says love is patient, love is kind, I can almost guarantee that's the first thing to go in any marriage relationship. They're not patient anymore, and we're not kind anymore. So I'd probably start there, say start being patient, start being kind, look at Jesus, and then you have to have the Holy Spirit come in and say, 
I got truth. I know God doesn't want divorce. I don't even have to talk about that. I don't have to entertain that. I don't have to even put that on the table. If God chose to have us together, the question then becomes why? And what if, according to Tim Keller, he brought us together to sand off the edges that we both really need? And if we do it in a Christian way, which is committed to each other, no matter what darkness I have, I know you're with me. And I'm going to, the analogy you've heard me say is, many of us are like soldiers. We have one leg shot off. Maybe my right leg shot off. What if my wife's left leg is shot off? We're both deeply wounded. What if the only way out is side by side together? So I'd ask the Holy Spirit to come in and fuel my emotions, keep the truth in front of me, and then ask, what are the ways of God's kingdom, and how are they reflected in our relationship? So I've got a... Uh, a guy who is a porn addict, who is um, doing a pretty good job of hiding it, but has emotionally detached relationally. He is um, kind of in that numbing state where he just, he can't find his way out of it, and it's starting to affect jobs, starting to affect family. He just can't find his way through it. Uh, what does, in, in any addiction, but specifically in this one that we know is so insidious, well, what's the Trinity offering that? Oh, that's a great question. So, you know, most of the studies Nate and I have seen, you know, porn is in the 30, 40, 50, depending on how they want to measure it. And it's now it's almost equal with females. You know, it wasn't that way a decade ago. And so no doubt the porn issues out there. I think porn is the one that's probably a little more complex. They all are. But what's embedded in most of the, the, the addictions is a lie that God is not, he's holding out on me. That there's something... This can give me something this can't. That, that's usually what's underneath. So I, first thing I would say is, well, what's the way of God's kingdom? Is watching videos of God's daughters engaged in that? Is that the way of his kingdom? I mean, it's just, it's, it's an easy question to answer. There's nothing about it that is the way of God's kingdom. We can go down the checklist of what it violates in the kingdom of God. Making objects of people benefiting from the voyeurism of it, just the, just the insidious. But that's just the kingdom piece. The truth piece, Jesus comes along and says, I, I, I am. And, and what I think he's saying, Nate, I, I don't think he's saying I dispense truth. I know he does. He gives truth. But what he's also saying is, in me, I am the truth. One of the funniest things I think I told you as a little kid, there's a little kid that a pastor buddy, I, I, I'm kind of almost like a grandpa too, and he's with me all the time, and I have a bad leg. I was getting up out of the pool at the campground, and I walk all janky, like I'm coming up out of the pool, you know, I'm going like this, you know, and I hear everybody start laughing. And I look, and little Marcus, this big behind me, he's going like this. Why is he doing that? Why? You have to move close to Jesus. Sin and shame create that distance. And Jesus is not creating that distance. He is wanting us. So I'd say lean into that and then trust that the Holy Spirit truly can transform. The Holy Spirit, that's not a sin too big for the Holy Spirit to transform. The gospel's big enough for that. Third one, and then we'll close. Single person, mid-20s. Desperately longs to be hmm. married. Continues to find moments of numbing euphoria and, and extracurricular activities they should not be involved with. But the truth is, they're just longing for real companionship. 
and they're frustrated and they feel like God is just not offering them the desires of their heart. Where's the Trinity in that? Yeah. Interestingly enough, I, I know it's silly, but like both Paul and Jesus were single. I just find that statement that our culture is so built around, obviously, the family, rightfully so. But we certainly don't always make place, especially in the church, for singleness. So I think there's something there in some sense where we don't even... I've even heard people say, well, we could put them there, but oh, they're single. Like, we can't have them. That's a whole nother. The way of God's kingdom is that everybody has a place and everybody has something they can do. It's a play that he's writing, that he has a part for you. And so I'd probably, the first thing I'd ask him is, what do you think the part he's asking you to play? If he has you single for now, what advantages does that have for God's kingdom? I can see where maybe there's not a ton for you, but that's never what it's been about. There were no advantages to Jesus to come and let his own creation crucify him. There were no advantages to that to him. Those advantages were to us. And I'd maybe ask him what humility might ask of them. Where could they, are they showing that? Are they living the fullness of compassion, peace? And then I would just ask the Holy Spirit, I know this is going to sound corny, to fill that need in the way that only the Spirit can. I call the Spirit the great cardiologist. Because the Holy Spirit moves in those places within us and, and fills those parts that we might come up short. And I think if they lived in community and looked at the ways of God's kingdom and looked at Jesus and said, oh, last I checked, he was single. And, yeah. and the Holy Spirit is the active agent in filling that, I would be surprised if they didn't find a greater sense of purpose and hope and peace and maybe even come to see it as an advantage. Which is exactly what Paul teaches, right? I'm going to stop it there for sake of time, but I, I was reflecting on your commentary about the, the courtroom scene in your mind, right? And I was thinking about the fact that the accuser comes, and the truth is that the accuser, what the accuser brings us and brings against us is often true. It's true. It's often true. It's it not, is. It's not, it's not that I'm standing there <laughs> saying not guilty. Not, it's right. like the accuser's right, right most of the time. It's not about trying to prove my innocence. It's just about the fact that the cross took care of it, and the cross is enough for it. And so I think when, sh when you're trying to deal with shame, I, as I was reflecting on what you're saying, it's like I'm not trying to deny the realities of what I may have done right. or what has been done to me. It's the recognition that what the cross accomplished is great enough. 100%. The, the verse that's just, the story, if you all know, in Exodus where they rise up a rebellion against Moses, right? Korah's rebellion. They're going to rise up and they're going to fight. And God, in the midst of that text, God, I think, lays waste to 16,000 of his own people. Mows them down. And then on the way out, he says, hey, grab the lampstands for they're holy to me. I thought to myself, okay, let me get this straight. Please forgive me. Gangster God, just with a Tommy gun, would mow down 16,000 of his own people. And on the way out, he tells his guys, grab the empty shell casings. They're holy to me. My question for you is, what makes a lampstand holy? I'll tell you what it is. Nothing. There's nothing holy about a lampstand until God says it's holy. And when the God of the universe who speaks a word and says, let there be light, when he says it, 
I'm holy. It has nothing to do with what I do. And nothing. he declared us holy because of the cross. Because of it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. May you be glorified as we consider the significance of what's been accomplished. May we live into that reality. And may that indeed be the antidote to the shame that is so easily put on us that we give room to breathe in our lives. May the hope of the gospel and the reality of its implications in our daily lives be the thing that we lean into to walk in the freedom you've called us to. In the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand together, please?